welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Exodus 19 today, if you'd like to turn there, Exodus 19. Back in the 1920s, a South Dakota historian named Duane Robinson had this great idea. He realized that the Black Hills of South Dakota were absolutely beautiful, and he realized that this would make a great tourist invention with the advent of the automobile and the popularity of the automobile. And so he came up with this idea that we need a tourist attraction in the Black Hills that people will want to come see. And what he came up with is we need a giant statue bigger than anywhere else in the nation that people would come to. We now know this as Mount Rushmore. Now, the first, his first inclination was to take this and make it as a monument to, to great Native American leaders. This is a, the area of the Sioux tribe and to honor those leaders. But they, they figured that at some point, nobody would want to come see these people who might be forgotten to history. And so they instead figured out that they would decide to make this giant statue or giant set of statues four of the most popular presidents ever. There's a picture of it there. If you go to Mount Rushmore, there's a little viewing area. It's absolutely huge. I picked that picture so that you can get a picture of how big Mount Rushmore is compared to people. This is about 100 years ago that this idea was formulated. And today, over 3 million people go here every single year to visit Mount Rushmore. How many of you have been there? Let me see your hands if you've been there. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. That when I was younger, I thought, I am not driving to South Dakota to see a bunch of people carved into uh, a side of a mountain. I can look at pictures of it. But a couple years ago, Jessica and I were going to Yellowstone, and it just so happened that our, our trek was taking us right through the Black Hills, and we had been warned by many people, said, you've got to stop in the Black Hills and experience everything there is to experience there. So we spent a few days at Rapid City, and we did visit Mount Rushmore. It's absolutely awe-inspiring to go here. Uh, you walk up and you're just you're grasped by how big and how grand this statue is. And as the, as you go to Mount Rushmore, there's this little walking track where you have different vistas and different views of the faces. And at one place, there's a visitor center where where the park rangers will sit there and they'll teach you about all the things that happened, how many people died making Mount Rushmore, how Mount Rushmore was carved, all of those things. I learned an interesting fact about Mount Rushmore while I was there. Did y'all know that Mount Rushmore was purposely left unfinished uh, it's still a work in progress I don't mean they didn't finish because they didn't get everything done I mean the original designs said that they were going to carve Mount Rushmore and they were going to leave it completely unfinished see the architect who put this together made the decision that the last inch on each one of the faces they would not carve out so the picture that we see now is those faces with an extra inch of material that's not supposed to be there they decided in order for the faces to be flawless and smooth the way that they wanted to that they would let God and erosion take care of that last inch of rock so when you visit Mount Rushmore today just understand that they're not finished yet God is still working on them just like he's still working on us that's not the point but that just came out but here is what I find interesting about this is is that last inch of material would you like to take a guess at how long it's going to take for that inch of granite to fade off the faces of Mount Rushmore 10,000 years. 
the architects of this particular sculpture decided that we're going to build a sculpture that will not be finished for 10,000 years. That's not how long it will last. That's how long until it is complete. Now, short of God coming back or an earthquake or a natural disaster, what that tells me is that those faces will be in that mountain for the rest of however long this earth is here. 10,000 years, they said. And what that tells me is that rock is a very, very suitable thing if you want to keep something important to you, if you want to keep it forever. They could have drawn pictures or painted pictures of these presidents, but that wasn't good enough. They wanted a giant rock memorial, something that would last forever. And as we start a new series today, uh, written in stone, we are going to do a deep dive of the Ten Commandments. And you may be looking at that, and that may not just set your heart afire with excitement, like, woohoo, the Ten Commandments. But, but it's something so special about the Ten Commandments. Did you know that God himself thought that these commands for our life were so important that he wrote them in stone himself? He wrote them in a format that was supposed to be eternal, that was supposed to last as long as the earth would last. And so when we talk about the Ten Commandments, while I understand it's kind of like we see them everywhere. They're, they're in schools sometimes. We have a picture of them in the hallway of the church. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to them, but there's something very special about these rules that God delivered to us. That, that he would want to last throughout all eternity. And as we go through this series, we're not just going to focus on the do's and the do nots. Like, I feel like I could preach an entire sermon. Do not steal. Have a great week. Like, that could have been enough. But we're going to focus on why. Why did God take these things? Why were they special to him? Why did he deliver them, especially the way that he did? What is it that they reveal about God's nature? And how do they apply to us? Exodus 19 sets the stage for the Ten Commandments. And, and this goes back to a covenant that God made with a guy named Abraham 550-ish years before this. God had came to Abraham, a man who was too old to have children and who had no children. He said, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will, I will have you, your descendants will be multiplied forever and I have plans for your descendants as a great nation. And 550 years later, we see that there are 2 million descendants of Abraham in the book of Exodus coming out of the land of Egypt. 430 of those years, those people had spent enslaved in Egypt, or for the most part, enslaved in Egypt. Now, we tend to look at Egypt and say, well, Egypt was all bad for the Israelites. But I, I, as I studied this this week, I think Egypt was part of God's plan. For, for nearly four, or over 400 years, the Israelites lived in a culture that was so opposite to them. They, they, were, they were ethnically different. They were culturally different. And so when they married and when they mingled, they intermarried amongst themselves. And you have this pure nation coming out of Egypt that is exactly what God described to Abraham. His descendants, two million of them, coming out of this into the world. And into the scene enters a guy named Moses. Now Moses is a special guy by any standard. In Judaism today, Moses is still like the pinnacle of prophets. Even as Christians, we all know about Moses and we know the things that he'd done. Moses had personal, audible conversations with God. I don't mean that Moses prayed like we pray. I mean, God came to earth and met with Moses and spoke to him. Moses was tasked with going to the king of the most powerful nation in the world and delivering messages from God that said, let my people leave this place. God gave Moses the power to, to split the Red Sea. God had done so much stuff through Moses that Moses was a guy that everybody could trust. And through Moses, God rescues his people. And for three months, his people wander through the desert in the Sinai Peninsula, going to a very specific place. 
It's the same place historians believe and scholars believe. It's the same place that Moses met God in the form of the burning bush. It's called Mount Sinai. And the story of the burning bush is called Mount Horeb. But historians think that those are the same people. And outside of this mountain, these two million people set up camp. And that's where we're at in Exodus 19. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. In the third month... When the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, in the same day into the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thou shalt say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel." So Moses goes up and he meets with God and God sends a message. Now, let me be clear. Let's, let's take a time to just focus on where they're camped. It, it might be easy to overlook the fact that they're camped outside of this mountain. But this is something that is very important to our Bible. And that tells me it's very important to God that the Israelites camped here for over a year. If you look into your Bible, 57 chapters of your Bible are dedicated to their time spent at this camp where they're meeting with God and God is preparing them. This is a place where God is preparing them for the mission that he has. He's preparing them to send them out into the world. It's kind of like sports. Some of you guys are big sports fans and we all know that at some point in the year, that they take this team of people and they take them and they send them off to sports camp, whether it's fall camp for football or spring camp for baseball, and they, they just devote themselves to understanding more about the game that they play and getting ready for the contest that's coming up. God has his Israelites and God has his people and he sets them in a place and he begins to prepare them for what it means to be God's people in the world for about a year here. And as Moses goes to meet with God, Moses does what he does best. He, he becomes a messenger for God. And God tells him, he said, go back and tell the people, you've seen who I am. You, you've seen what I've done. You saw the 10 plagues that I brought down in Egypt to rescue you. You, you saw how I split oceans for you to cross. You, you remember the time when you were without food and food fell out of the sky for you. You remember the time that you were without water and water came out of a rock for you. You know who I am and, and now you have a choice to make. Do you choose me as your God? Do you choose me to follow? And I think that's a question that every human being in the history of the world has to struggle with. We, we see who God is, whether it's through the Bible or through the example of other people's lives, and we have this question set before us is, do we choose to follow him? Do we choose to make him our God? And so the Israelites have this question this sets a deal in front of them called the Mosaic Covenant. And God comes to the Israelites and he says, here's what I offer and here is what I require in this covenant. So the three things that God offers to the Israelites in becoming his people and following him is number one, he calls them a particular treasure, a peculiar treasure, a special treasure to me. God says, look at all of these things that I've done. You've seen who I am. And of all the people on earth, I'm offering you the opportunity to be exclusive to me. 
The Bible says in the New Testament for us that where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. And so what God offers the Israelites at this moment is not just, hey, would you like to sign a contract? He says, you will be my treasure. You will be special to me. You above all people will have my heart. You will have a special purpose. Secondly, he says, you will be a holy nation. Now, when we hear the word holy, we tend to think of like coming to church and dressing a certain way and acting a certain way. Holy is a very simple word that just means to be different, to be set apart, to be put a place for a purpose. And so when God says that you will be a, a holy nation, that this, the purpose for the Israelites is that they will be a nation that reflects the nature of God and his design for the world. And that's the purpose of the Ten Commandments, is that they show the principles in which God designed us to live by. And he comes to this group of people and he said, look, I designed this world. I am the creator. And you have the opportunity to live the way that I have called people to live and be an example to the world, to be set apart, to be different. See, the Ten Commandments focus on two things that God called the Israelites to and he calls us to today. Number one is serve God. Number two is serve other people. What does the rest of the world focus on? Serve me. And so God says, you will be set apart, not just because you're gonna be in a place that sets you apart. You'll be set apart by your conduct and how you act. When the rest of the world says, serve me, you will live out my commands of serving God and serving others. And third, he said, you will have the opportunity to be priest. And once again, you're looking at this going, Brian, that doesn't set my excitement fire like blazing, right? Like I don't want to be a priest. Me neither, but here we are. He says, you get the opportunity to be a priest. And think about, think about what it means to be a priest. What does a priest do? A, a priest delivers a message. So these people will serve as a living message of the love of God, of God's design, and offering to people to be a part of God's plan. And through these people will come the ultimate message. Through these people with the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, comes through them. And so God offers them all of these things. This is our first take-home truth, is that God offers his heart and a part of his master plan to his people. It's very important for us today, though we weren't there, though we're not Israelites, understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God offers to us the same thing. He offers to us a part of his plan and his heart if we choose to follow him. But this particular contract, this particular covenant, this particular covenant has two parts to it. And, and most contracts do, and that's all a covenant is, is a contract. Most contracts do have two parts for it. Last year, I went to a bank and I said, hey, I love this house, but I can't afford it right now. Would you guys give me the money? Uh, that was my asking. Like, if you guys will give me the money, what will it take? And I signed this very extensive 90-page contract that basically said, yes, our part of the contract is we will give you the money to buy that house. But your part of the contract is that you will pay it back every month over the next 30 years. Help me, I will be retired by the time I pay my house off. That just hit me. You will pay it off every month for the next 30 years and you will pay extra money back. That's, that's how a contract works is it has two parts. And so when God comes to them with this contract, God says to him, this is your part. He says, number one, obey me. 
And he's about to lay out the instructions of what it means to obey God and what those Ten Commandments are that God wants them to follow, along with, with many, many more things that we don't put in the same realm as the Ten Commandments. And you might look at this and, and ask yourself, well, is this a buy your way into God's love type situation? Is that what God's saying? He's like, hey, if you want me to love you, you better do these things. That, that's not how God works. That's not what God is asking. And these particular commandments and this particular covenant is not about God's love or about his salvation. But what God says to them, if you want to be a treasure to me, if you want to be holy, you will obey me. You will allow me to teach you how to be set apart. How can you be set apart and different from the world if you don't let God change you? How can you be a priest that delivers a message to the world if you don't accept that calling? And so God says, obey me. Secondly, he says, keep my covenant. And the covenant is very simple. It just defines the relationship between God and people. The covenant very simply says, if you look at everything, God says, I'm God and you are the followers. That's, that's the relationship that we have here. And isn't it easy, maybe we don't say it mentally, isn't it easy to get that reversed in our lives? where we say, I'm God and God, you serve me. How often do we only go to God and, and only try to experience God when we want him to do something for us? How often do we live our lives where we ask him to serve us instead of us to serve him? Earlier this week, I was talking to some people and I was talking about some plans I had for this church and, and some of the things that I wanted to do leadership-wise. And, and um, a few weeks ago, I had it all set up in my mind and I took some time to basket in prayer and, and God kind of like put, set me down and put me in timeout and said, Brian, that's not how I want you to lead right here. And I was expressing this to a couple of people and, and this is the word I said jokingly. I said, <laughs> I get, God thinks he's in charge up here instead of me. And while that's comical, while, that, while that's something that we would never actually say or never actually mean, sometimes that is true. Sometimes we live our life doing the things that we want to do. And when it comes into conflict with God's commands or the way God wants us to live, we have this moment of realization. God thinks he's in control. And so God tells the Israelites, if you want to follow me, I am in charge. Do you accept these terms and conditions? And so Moses takes this back to the people. He says, here's what God says. Here's what God offers and here's what God requires. This is what he said. This is the message. Do you accept his covenant? Do you accept his contract? And the people who had seen God show up mightily for them over the past several months, they said, yes, we accept God's contract. And then they break that contract again and again and again and again. They break the contract by, uh, by serving false gods before the contract is even finalized, before Moses even makes it back down off the mountain with the words written in stone. But they did accept it. And what I love about this story is that no matter how many times the Israelites mess up, is God's grace is always there to catch them, even in the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, it is this constant flow of the Jews and the Israelites breaking God's commandments, being punished, and coming back to him, and he welcomes them back with open arms. And then a few years later, they do it again, and again, and again, and again. And so there are two things that we can learn from God from this passage. This is your next take-home truth. The first thing that we can learn is that God desires his people to glorify him with their behavior. You and I are his people. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. Is we have accepted his calling. When he comes to, us and comes to us and says, follow me, we say, yes, God, I follow you. I choose you to be my God. I choose you to be my Lord. 
And to God, it is important that we live set apart and that we live differently. Not to earn God's love, but it is important for God to be able to use you. How can you show the world him if you don't live like him? How will people notice him in our lives if we don't live differently? And the second thing we can learn under our our take-home truth is that God has grace for our failures. Again and again and again, these people reject God. Again and again and again. They they don't just mess up and, and fall into sin. They make other gods for themselves, and they serve other gods, other figurines, and other statues. And yet God is always there for them in their failures. He never leaves them. And both of those things are very important for us if we want to understand God. You've got to take both parts of those. Because if you lean too much on the behavior part of following God, that is not following Christ. And I've lived a lot of my life that way where I focus on the behavior and acting the right way. But if we do that, that's legalism. Legalism obeys, but it does not adore. And we cannot praise God's grace if we go through this world thinking that all I have to do is live a good life and God will be happy with me. That's not the gospel and that's not following Christ. But you can take it the other way as well. You can lean too much on grace. You can say that grace allows me to live how I want to, that I don't have standards of behavior, that God doesn't care how I act. It's only when we take a mixture of those two things and understanding that because of God's grace that we want to live a life that is pleasing to him, that we have the true gospel, that we have the true understanding of who God is. After the agreement, Moses comes back and, and he says to God, he's like, they said yes. <laughs> like that's, that's what they decided to do. God says, we're gonna have a formal meeting in three days. In three days, I'm going to come down and I'm going to talk personally to my people. And in those three days, I want you to take a time of purification, a time of consecration with those people and prepare them for this meeting. If you continue on in Exodus 19, it tells us the story of what happened on that third day. This is verses 16 through 19. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. So all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp and met with God, and they stood at the neither part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether a smoke, on, on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down on the Mount Sinai on top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top. So here we have in these verses, it tells us what these people experienced. After three days of preparing for this meeting, both parties of the covenant, both parties of the contract come to meet each other. And they come to meet at the mountain. God had decided that they didn't need to come up the mountain, so there were barriers put into place, and God descends in all of his glory on top of this mountain. A visual spectacle of who God is. Around this mountain was a giant thunderstorm. Thunder that shakes the windows. I don't know, well, they didn't have windows. That shakes the tents. Lightning. And, and the entire mountain was on fire. It says God appeared to them as fire, and smoke descended to the heavens. And so here come two million people to the base of this mountain mountain to meet with God and this is the visual that they see now all of those things could have been natural could have been a forest fire and a thunderstorm 
but it's at the moment that God calls out of them with a trumpet. A trumpet comes out of the smoke and out of the clouds and out of the thunder and it gets louder and louder and louder. Do you know what trumpets are used for? Trumpets announce the arrival of a king. And so the people are left with no choice but to understand we are being called to meet with the ruler of the world. We're being called to come and be where God is. And they stand at the mountain and they look up at this awesome spectacle and they see this is the God that you will serve. And, and so as they gather around the mountain, God speaks to them. We're not gonna read the scripture today. We'll cover it all in the, in the coming weeks. But in chapter 20, it says that the voice of the Lord spoke and all people heard it. And he read to them what we now consider the Ten Commandments. If you want to read those this week, that's in your um, weekly soap, in your bulletin. That's verses 1 through 17, chapter 20. And they all hear him as he lays out these ten overarching principles of how he wants them to live. Okay, Israel, if you're going to obey me, here's the rules. Here's what I want. And they will later be written in stone. But this encounter with God tells us something very special about his relationship with the Israelite. As God speaks, his words set him apart from every other God in the world. See, pagan gods, they don't speak. Pagan gods are statues that people created and gave them attributes. Pagan gods never spoke to the people, but here the Israelites have this mountain that is on fire and it is trembling and it is loud. And out of the smoke comes this booming voice that says, you will obey me by, and he goes down this list of 10 things that he wants them to do. Pagan gods never spoke. They were unconcerned with people that worshiped them, probably because they didn't actually exist. They were just statues. And on top of that, pagan gods were never moral. Study any pagan religion, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, it doesn't matter, any pagan religion, these are not moral gods. These gods get married and they cheat on each other and they have all of this drama and they steal from each other. These gods that humans have invented are never moral. And yet here you have Yahweh, the God of Israel and our God. He speaks as a moral authority. He speaks with a voice that can be heard and he teaches right and wrong. Not because that's what it takes to please him, because he, he sets out before the people, I created you and this is what I created you to be. And this is how I created you to live before your sin nature came along. And he lays out for them a different life that sets them apart from the world. But the rules, or I'm sorry, the words of God here also set us apart. See, this is, this is more than religion. When, when God speaks to you out of a cloud of fire, that's not a man-made religion. That's not a set of rules that we decided would sound really good. It's not a set of governing principles. This is an encounter with a living, loving being who wants to speak to us personally and tell us what he wants from us. And all of the rules that he put out there set us apart and set Israel apart because every last one of them goes against our human nature. There is not a baby that has ever been born not a single child ever been born who comes out of the womb whose first thought is, I want to glorify and praise and serve God. It's not natural for us to not steal. It's not natural for us not to commit adultery and restrain our sexuality. It's not natural for us to do that. And so God gives these rules to these people, not because they're easy, but because they go against the grain of, of what the world does so that these people can be set apart as an example and they can be messengers to the world. See, I've heard it said before, well, these are the Ten Commandments, not the, the Ten Friendly Suggestions. And I agree with that. They are the Ten Commandments. They're very precious to God. 
But let's not let our attitude get in the way of what God's trying to do. Is He's establishing for us a better life, a life marked by goodness and holiness and purpose, and a life that allows us to be a light in the dark world. That's that's what God wants. And you have to think that these Israelites who have been slaves for all their life and they stand in front of a mountain where God appears to them visibly and he speaks to them and he lays out these standards for holiness. You have to think that, that they would feel pretty small. I mean, they're, they're confronted with the literal glory of God, the literal holiness of God. And you have to think that these were hard things to say. Out of two million people, do you think there was somebody there who had ever stole something? There's probably two million of them because I don't know about y'all, but kids steal candy. Like, like, do you think there was anybody there who may have cheated on their wife? Think there was anybody there who'd been so angry they'd secretly killed somebody? And they're confronted with this holiness of God. And he lays out with his voice after a trumpet called this moral code. <laughs> How would you respond if you were there? What would you do? I'll tell you what I'd do and what you would do too is we would run and hide. And you know how I know that? It's not because it's, not because it's something that the Bible tells us. It's because that's how we confront God today. When God reveals his holiness to us, we run and hide. As followers of Christ, how many times have we messed up and we made a mistake and what do we do? We, we hide from God when we're confronted with his standards for our life. And so these people ran and hide. They run away and they came to Moses. And this is in chapter 20. We won't read it. But this is in chapter 20, verses 18 through 19, if you want to look at it. They come back to Moses and they're like, look, we're not going back to that mountain. We, we, you, you don't let God talk to us anymore. God can talk to you and then you come talk to us. But we're not going back up there to listen to him. He's, he's scary to us. And this reveals something about us, to, to, about our nature, about the human condition, and about the brokenness that we have. Is even the Israelites, even the Israelites knew that they didn't belong with God. Even the Israelites knew that next to his holiness and his standards that they were imperfect and they were scared of him. Even with an invitation, even with a contract, they sought a mediator. They sought somebody who would go between them and God and deliver messages. Our last take-home truth is this, is that we need a mediator between us and God. Now, this morning, you and I no longer live under this contract and under this covenant. It's not about us, but it is so eerily similar to what God offers each of us. Does the New Testament not call us a royal priesthood? Does the New Testament not call us to be messengers of Christ, to live holy and set apart? Isn't, isn't it the same requirements from God of being a Christian as what he's doing here? And yet, as we look at the holiness of God, we know that our sinfulness does not meet his perfection. And there's something about us that says, I can't come to God with my dirtiness, and I can't come to God with my brokenness. Some of you are dreading this series some of you don't want to hear it because you know there's a commandment in there and you know it's been your downfall in your life. Not once, not twice, but again and again and again and again. And you don't want to hear this because it causes you to confront the holiness of God. I've got good news for you. The Israelites had Moses as a mediator, but God gave us a mediator as well in the name of Jesus Christ. Live if you want to make your way up here. 
And so as we study this, we will be confronted with our own brokenness. We will be confronted with the holiness of God. But the message that we have with the Ten Commandments and the message that we have with this sermon series written in stone is that we don't have to walk in shame. That because of Christ's price that he paid on the cross for you and me, taking our death upon him, we can walk boldly to God and we can go to the throne of grace and say, God, I messed up. God, I failed at this. God, I still want to follow you. And that invitation is open to all of us today. Maybe this morning we need to get our, our visual of who God is right as a holy, perfect being that has standards for our behavior, but as a holy, perfect being who loves us and gives us grace. Maybe we need to connect, correct that this morning. And maybe we need to commit to him for the first time. In either case, I would love to talk with you. And this is, this is open for you in prayer as we prepare for this, this series where we deep dive all of these commandments. Some of them will be painful. But this morning, let us go to God and thank him for his love for us and his provision of a mediator.